Hey friends, welcome back to the Beautiful Tension Podcast. My name is Gary and I'm stoked you're tuning in. This podcast, Beautiful Tension, is a place where we talk about the hard things we've been through, yet we also acknowledge the beauty that's come from those things. We talk about resilience, what it looks like to make this world better, and so much more. So today, I'm starting this episode with a joke. A Bible major and an MDiv graduate walk onto a podcast. And you got this episode. (laughs) Juliana Ford was taken by surprise when she discovered her calling to be a pastor. With her friends and family behind her, she pursued a Master of Divinity degree and recently graduated from Azusa Pacific University. With joy and sincere passion, she shares about calling, God's will, and the importance of thoughtful biblical interpretation. This one's for Bible nerds, but also anyone wrestling with the church, the Bible, and the tensions therein. My conversation with Juliana was so good, and I know you're going to enjoy it. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Juliana, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. It's so good to have you. I appreciate you so much, and I value you. You're a very dear friend to me. I think you're awesome. You have a great story to tell, and I know that it's going to be a great chat today. So for people who don't necessarily know who you are, who is Juliana? My name is Juliana Ford. I live in Southern California, like the LA area. I am married, and I just graduated from seminary with my MDiv. So, and working on my ordination, like just about to start that process. I am an Enneagram 7 and an ENFP, I think. I don't know. It always switches between the P and the J, depending <laughs> depending on the season of life. I am an extrovert in the middle of a quarantine. So that's been fun. <laughs> Sending <Yeah>. prayers. <laughs> I know. I know. I also realize how many introverted friends I have. I feel like I was like, oh, oh, no, all, almost all my friends are introverts. Oh, got it. Got it. Okay, great. <laughs> it's been pretty wild. My birthday is next week, so I'm about to have a little age turn. And I don't know. That's such a hard question to answer, you know? Like, who are you? Every context, right? Your answer changes just a little bit. You did great. I love it. And I love the Enneagram and Myers-Briggs. That's perfect. Golly. Yeah, it is. It's super helpful. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, Gary and I met at Azusa Pacific University. And I feel like that's good to add. And I that's where I graduated from my MDiv. Stayed on for a little, took a little break, took a detour, then went right back there for my, for my master's. That's amazing. And I have to ask, when did we meet? Like, I know it was sophomore year of college, but what exactly was it? Because we weren't in the same programs or... I literally don't remember. Like, I I don't remember. Through Nicole? Because of Alpha? I think so. I think that was one. And then I think when we both got a job at Campus Safety, I was like, oh, that guy's really cool. I want to be friends with him. There it is. Campus Safety. Oh, wow. There we go. Those are the days. Oh, golly. (laughs) If anyone needs their doors locked, we got you. (laughs) That is by far one of the worst jobs I have ever had. Spent my Friday night walking around campus, locking up all the classrooms. Wild. (laughs) I was like, wow, that's what I'm doing when I'm 19. Just literally, that's that's my Friday nights. Uh, Shows just how cool I was as a college student. (laughs) Wow. I haven't thought of that probably since I worked that job. Like, 
it's, That's a it's so, I know, I know. I, you know, I try to, I try to block that part out. <laughs> job out of well, my life. we'll move on to avoid the trauma. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking to education, you've been on quite the journey as far as your path, both the schooling, but then also your vocation and calling, discovering the thing or things that you feel called to. I'd love for you to to share more about that as far as you mentioned just graduating with your MDiv, which is awesome. Congratulations. I'm real curious what led you to pursuing your MDiv. So I was really, really blessed to grow up in a family that was egalitarian, which is like basically the fancy word that of churches that think that women and men should be pastoring. And I think there's a, like most things, most things, there's a spectrum. Egalitarian's at one end, complementarian is the other end. And there's ranges anywhere from like on the hard end of complementarian, like people like John MacArthur or John Piper, who are like, no, women should not be preaching or teaching in any, like, any form they should just be like maybe teaching other women and like teaching little children so like that's one end of the spectrum all the way to I mean and there's lots of stuff in the middle to egalitarian is like no like women can be lead pastors of a church you know women can they can like lead a church they can lead um, not just be maybe an assistant pastor or a children's director but they can have just as much authority in a church as um as men can and so I grew up in like a home that really valued women in leadership and a denomination that really valued women in leadership in the church. It wasn't until I got to college that I really understood, you know, that like I thought, oh, maybe just in the South, there's like churches that think that women can't be pastors or shouldn't be pastors. And so in college, I was a communication studies major. That's what I got my degree in. I worked and volunteered for lots of different nonprofits and I absolutely loved it. And I decided I really thought that that was where my path is going to be, you know, CEO of a really incredible nonprofit in leadership or working somehow working with nonprofits. And like I interned for a couple and I loved I loved what I got to do. And then right about my senior year, I had a mentor, one of my mentors, she'd been mentoring me for about two years at the time. She she just like posed a question that I had really never thought of. She's like, Juliana, what if you take all of these things that you're really good at naturally, just do a quarter turn and think about using them in ministry. And of course, at the time, right, my thought was like, well, women can do ministry, but like not me. As That's not for me. And so I was like baffled because I just had never considered that before. But I just started thinking about it, right? It was that seed that was planted in my head and my heart. And I started thinking about it and I just let myself sit with it. And I, you know, asked another female pastor at our university what it took to be, because I, I was thinking like maybe like what my mentor did, she pastored at our college. I thought, like, wow, she gets to meet with undergraduate women. Like she gets to just sit with them. And like my view of her job was like, she just tells me what to do with my life and helps me make good decisions. I'm like, that sounds awesome. That sounds like a great job. And at that moment, thinking about her job and what she got to do and how she got to pastor and guide and advise young women. And suddenly I think I had that moment of like, that sounds like the best job ever. Like that sounds amazing. Um, and so I talked to another female pastor at our school, Pastor Christy Adams, and asked her like, well, what do I have to do? I'm like, what kind of degree do I need? And she was like, well, you probably need an MDiv. And I was like, you sure there's not an easier master's? <laughs> For those of you who aren't familiar with seminary, most masters, even in seminary, are about two-year programs, right? Like about 50 to 60 units. And or or as low as 30. So most masters take anywhere from about a year or two years. It's pretty typical. 
an MDiv is at least three to four years. It's a 74 credit master's. And so it takes a lot more time and effort than other degrees did. And I was like, are you sure there's not an easier one? Um, So I did not feel like spending another three years in school. And at the time, my relationship with my husband, he was just like my brand new boyfriend at the time. And so I graduated from undergrad and I just kind of sat and started thinking about, huh, could this actually be something like amazing? And there was no divine, like the heavens opened and I opened my Bible to the page that said, and you, and you shall lead them like a shepherd. Like there was no moment like that in my life. And so that word calling is so unique and I, and I love giving it a broader definition because calling looks so different in our lives. Some people really do have that moment where they sit down and open their laptop or open their Bible or, you know, they have a moment where they literally feel like the skies have opened and they know what they need to do. But for me, it was so different. It was a lot of little moments, little confirmations. It was me getting excited. Um, It was me starting to pay more attention to sermons at church, like instead of falling asleep in the middle of a sermon, but like actually paying attention and getting excited when the pastor used a Greek word and like told us what the word meant. And I like got excited and took notes. And I had always loved church and I always loved Jesus. And I just thought that I was like, that was just a part of my life as I did leadership in like more, you know, quote, secular areas. Um, And so I kind of sat with it. And one of the things, you know, testing out that like calling, like, is this really from like, is this something God's telling me to do? Is this just something crazy? You know, is having those conversations with people who knew me really, really well of just like, hey, so here's a crazy idea. You know, what is, what is, what did you think of me being like a pastor at a college? Like, how does that sound like a campus pastor or something? Like, how does that sound to you? And I'm over here, like, not even sure if I would be any good at it. Um, not sure if this was right for me, if I like, really worried that I somehow misheard God and was picking something wrong and going to, and it's like master's degrees are big and hard decisions. You know, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of tears. It's a lot of pain. And so the overwhelming response from a hundred percent of my friends was, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've never thought of that. You would be amazing at that. And I was so surprised. Like I legit did not think that'd be their reaction. I thought the reaction was probably, didn't know how they, my friends would react. I thought it'd be much more like a oh, yeah, that could be cool, I guess. You know, I didn't expect people to really see that in me, something I couldn't even see for myself. So that was like step one of being like, wow, other people think I can and other people believe in me even more than I believe in myself. And I, like I said, I was also just really blessed. Every family has their own dysfunction, but my parents, with all of our dysfunction in my family, uh, when I told them about changing my mind and deciding to get my MDiv, I really thought that they would be surprised and they would be like, oh, like most people are like, oh, wow, that's amazing. We're so shocked. They were literally 0% surprised. They were like, oh yeah, no, we were just like wondering when you'd tell us that you'd figured that out and you were going to do it. I am really grateful that parents have been so supportive because I know that's not the case for everyone who attempts to go to ministry. I've had friends, I have friends in seminary who, um, a good friend who her dad is a pastor and he does not understand why she wants to be a pastor and is not supportive of her journey. And so there's a lot of really heartbreaking stories of lots of women I know 
And so it's just pretty unique that I have such really supportive family. And then for me, my husband and I were just, we're just in the beginning stages of our relationship, right? We'd been dating for maybe a couple of months when I was talking to him about it. And that for me was just a sign too of like, this is a good one because he was so excited for me. And he actually doesn't feel called to ministry at all. And instead he would rather run the AV, bo- <laughs> AV booth at the back um, and make sure uh, he doesn't really want the spotlight or to be on stage and instead is so wholeheartedly supportive and he's I'm really grateful that he doesn't have an ego that gets in the way or gets like those insecurities that sometimes guys can have about you know the women having positions in leadership like the women they're with having positions in leadership where they're not leading um and so I'm just really really grateful that my husband has just been like my biggest fan he's been the person that tells that told me to do homework the nights when I wanted to quit and the nights when I was done doing homework I literally I only graduated a couple of weeks ago which is hello class of 2020 quarantine <laughs> um, but even like two weeks before graduation I was like I'm done I don't want to do the last paper I quit I'm gonna quit right now <laughs> and he's like don't you dare no you gotta you, you're like you need to do homework girl so he's just been when I, I think people talk about the people that support like oh my family and friends are so supportive like those are the actual ways that I've been supported it's someone just telling me to hey I love you sit your butt down and finish the paper because um, I you know as most people don't want to sit down and write a paper ever pretty much but part of that in my calling is I knew a lot of women who were pastors and they were married and their husband was in ministry with them and they were just an incredible team and, and then I also knew some women who they were single and they were kicking ass and they were amazing but I didn't know any women who they were in ministry and their husbands had a normal job I didn't see that example Um, I didn't see that roadmap in front of me that I could do it too and so it took I took some more time to like think about it and to pray about it and so and I got a chance to meet and like now I've met some other incredible women who their husbands also have a normal job, which I'm not going to lie is pretty fun because all of our bills get paid. We, are, we can pay our rent. I'm like, <laughs> um, actually, I love couples who work in ministry together. I think it's awesome. But the secret sauce is being like, I love that I get to work in ministry and my husband is able to have a job that like gets our rent paid. So I'm really great, really, really grateful for that. And that's like a as a perk that not many people know about, but it is possible in ministry. So yeah, once I kind of worked through those obstacles in front of me, obstacles I put in my own path, it was a lot of just, I don't know if I'll be any good. And honestly, when I started, when I started school, I started with grad school, I still was like, I have no idea if I'm actually going to be any good at this. So yeah, I mean, I, so I started seminary. T- I still wasn't sure. I was like, you know, like, what if I'm terrible at this? Like, what if I hate it? Like, what if I'm actually, well, I didn't think I'd hate it because I, I got to the point where I looked at the, the class lists and even the names of the classes sounded really exciting. And, you know, I'd taken some Bible classes in college and it didn't make me want to change my major, but I just got this like renewed, this like new passion and excitement about it. And, um, and for me, I loved that I took a break in between undergrad and grad school because I really missed school. And I was like, you know, at the point where I'm like, it's one o'clock in the afternoon and I'm in a classroom. Like, what the heck? Like, I'm not working or dealing with, you know, my old job, but I get to be here and sit and learn. Like, that's crazy. And so I started my master's, my master of divinity in the fall of 2017. And I just finished spring of 2020. So I pushed through, like I said, it's like normally three to four year master's, but I pushed through to finish in three years and whew, Thank you, Jesus. I'm done. And so, yeah. And right now the thing I get to do 
at my actual, at my job is probably one of my most favorite, talk about like least favorite jobs I've ever had. This is my most favorite job I've ever had. I get to work with undergraduate students and undergraduate students who feel called to ministry, but they have no idea what that looks like. I work with a program that they could really be any major on campus and they help, we help them transition into seminary to kind of, you know, get their degree, finish a little bit faster. Um, I know a lot of schools have those like five-year bachelor to master's degrees. Ours is kind of like that with the emphasis in ministry. So I get to sit with a lot of students and hear how they are feeling called or what they might be doing and help them do. I mentor undergraduate women, which is literally such a dream. And I help them do a lot of vocational discernment. I work at the Center for Vocational Ministry at APU. And it is so cool that I actually get to do that as my job. And I've been working with them for the most for most of my master's career. It's been a blast. And so even just that word calling, I love to like take time to unpack it because I think sometimes we have ideas, these big charged words. We often have ideas of what it's supposed to look like or supposed to feel like. And for me, I know a lot, there are an amount of people that in my program that, you know, when they were 10, right, they had that moment of like, I'm supposed to be a pastor. But for me, that's not what it looked like. Instead, it looked a lot more like, I think I want to do this. I think this is something that sounds like I have some gifts. Like I know these are things that other people have confirmed that God's put in me and I know I'm good at, like I know I'm good at encouraging people. Like that's something I've always loved to do. And I can use these gifts in using these gifts in this way, in this job sounds amazing as hard as it is. And I think too, like I always just thought past to be a pastor was one job to work at a church. Like that was it. That was the whole definition of what a pastor was. And so even through seminary, I've seen so many different ways that being a pastor, and I still do think that people who work in churches have such a hard job (laughs) and they work so hard and are so passionate about the people that they serve. And I really, it's not until I really was in seminary that I like had hope for the church. I think I was just really disillusioned and really frustrated And instead, I get to see people who are like actively trying to serve their communities and the people around them and their whole heart is in it. And for pastors too, like, you know, the statistics right now are out out that um, I believe this is a like a Barna group did this like two years ago. So this is a survey is about two years old. But 80% of people will turn to their faith leader before they'll go to like a mental health professional. So whether it's a tragic loss or it is, you know, some trauma that has happened 80% of people will go to their with their faith leader and that is across the board not just Christians but across the board in America before they go to seek um, a health professional like a mental health professional excuse me and so that means faith leaders are on the front lines and can refer people out but they get a lot of there's a lot of that like well I'd rather go to someone something really hard happened I want to go to someone who I already know and trust and so yeah, I, I just have my eyes being in seminary have been open so much to what, how the word, the word and the job title of pastor is actually so varied and looks so different. And then I think I had this narrow view of before, um, even working at my job, you know, um, the people I work with are pastoring, even though they don't, they, they may not have the title of campus pastor, they are still pastoring in what they do. Mm-hmm. Everything you just said about these words calling or pastor, it reminds me of, for me, so I was a biblical studies major in undergrad. And the word that really got refined, especially through college was ministry, which is similar to calling in a way, but it has its own coloring. I think that word does have 
like it has certain cliches attached to it. Like, oh, ministry is being a pastor, for example. I know when I was a kid, I, I felt called to ministry in my own way, which in my nine-year-old brain was being the senior pastor of a church. And then I grew up, and especially as I went to college, a lot started to break down for me and things began to get redefined. And essentially coming out of that process, ministry, I realize, is your life. Ministry, we're all doing ministry. Ministry is the life that you're living and someone who is a pastor is doing ministry as much as a therapist or a doctor or a teacher or whatever it is. So yeah, it's really important, A, to clarify those terms, but B, I love what you said about calling and how that comes in different ways because I think so many young people, especially around coming out of high school and college age, and kind of all through your 20s, let's be honest, um, <laughs> but you're, there's kind of this reckoning of maybe having expectations growing up of how a quote-unquote calling is supposed to be, and then it ends up not happening the way you thought for a lot of us. I know for me, I thought it was the singular thing you had your whole life, and then when I realized it's this evolve, at least for me, it's been this evolving thing that I've been discovering especially as I've been discovering more of who I am, like that's been so liberating because it helps me lean into the unknown and to the tension and the, the mystery that life really is about. And so I love that you expanded, you know, those definitions because I think these terms, ministry, pastor, calling, we can get so honed in on what they mean that we end up losing sight of those things when they're actually speaking to us in a way that we don't, didn't think. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you. And like, like I was saying, like with the program that I work with, that is like one of my favorite things we do is expand what ministry can look like. I mean, one of my students, he got his degree, his undergraduate degree in computer science. And so he's getting a master's degree in pastoral studies because he wants to be able to have a legitimate job to go to other countries and like do his thing or whether it's other countries or other places around the States and like have the job that he does and like have the theological backing to be able to minister to people in the middle of it or bivocationally, which means, you know, maybe not being full time in ministry in a church, but he still wants to use, like wants to use both skills. I've got students who like are business majors and, you know, maybe a student who, like I have a student who wants to open a dance studio, but also still wants to get her master's to, to serve the people that she's around and like to know, have that information and the knowledge to know how to serve people well and to not. Um, that's something I'm really passionate about is to not have people spout things about the Bible that the Bible doesn't actually say. I think there is a real case of biblical illiteracy in our country. And I just see it, whether with my friends, whether just what we see on the news of people. Well, the Bible says this, but like, actually, like it kind of doesn't. Or like, you know, whether it is like phrases like God helps those who help themselves, right? Like that's a I think by now, I, I hope that's one of the ones that we know is actually not in the Bible. It's not in scripture anywhere. But even of like, oh, no, this verse means this. And that's actually a pretty American problem of just saying like, no, I read this verse and this is what that verse means to me. Sometimes that can be really, really beautiful of saying like, wow, this is what I learned because scripture is living and breathing. It, it's alive. And the Holy Spirit like speaks to us through scripture. But sometimes it like just like any beautiful thing can sometimes get twisted up like, no, I read this one exact verse and that is what it means to me. And that is the only meaning. So my students who like, I love that, like we can equip them to get whether even it's like a one year master's to so that when they go into the world to do what they are want to, what they feel called to do, even if it's not working in a church, whether it is or isn't, 
to know that when they talk about God, when they speak about what the Bible says or what Jesus has done, they are actually speaking not just their truth, which I mean, there's absolutely a place for like, this is my truth. This is your truth. Totally a place for that. But I'm talking about like capital T truth, things that are always and forever true. And actually no one can change that. That's really well said. So it's funny, we're talking about scripture and the tension within interpretation. And I have this book that I read a couple years ago, and it's right in front of me called Sacred Word, Broken Word by Kenton Sparks. I don't know if you've read it, but the subtitle reads Biblical Authority and the Dark Side of Scripture. And I mean, this is not a Bible podcast by any means, but (laughs) since I'm a Bible major, you have your MDiv, here we are. But scripture is a very precarious thing because like you said, it gets used and abused in a lot of ways. I mean, y'all know my story. I mean, if you don't, like I came out four years ago and I have certain relatives who in different terms or actions have disowned me because they would say, well, the Bible says homosexuality is wrong. And that's been used to weaponize my community. And what does that do but often leave queer people feeling so disenfranchised and abandoned by the church and then they leave their faith and frankly I don't blame them because those wounds run so 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 deep and so with you pursuing being a pastor and living into that calling what is your vision for scripture like what do we do with that tension what is your hope for the church in regards to the tension of scripture where do you think the church needs to change yeah Wow, you're just throwing easy questions at me, aren't you, today? (laughs) (laughs) I took church history. A, I love church history anyway. But B, I think there is so much that we miss when we only focus on what we think today, right now. And when we don't think about how, what the church has done with the Bible for like the last, since scripture has been written down, right? It's been thousands of years. That's like Old Testament, right? But scripture has just been written. And as Americans, we have a very unique history because, A, we were like one of the last countries to abolish slavery. And most of it was because of what we thought scripture, what people thought scripture said and that that view that we had of interpretation for scripture. Like England got, like England was also pretty Protestant at the time and they got rid of slavery 30 years before us, 30 years before the US did. And one of those reasons is like, Because we have a whole history, not just from the 1800s, but like going back as a country of this, like that interpretation of I'm going to sit down and I'm going to make observations and I'm going to see what I think scripture says. And I think that absolutely does matter, but that is not the only way to read scripture. I am a big fan of the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's like my favorite thing. I feel so nerdy talking about it. But essentially, John Wesley was talking about, he had these, imagine like a a square with like four boxes in it, right? Quadrilateral. Like when we take scripture and we're trying to make decisions about what we think that scripture says, right? In in our new world, right? Like in the 1860s, the question of gay marriage, of LGBTQ Christians, of LGBTQ people in leadership in the church. That was not a question. Gosh, every 20 years, we have new questions that we're trying to answer. And like, we're like, how does the Bible tell us? Because there are some things that are like, for most of us, pretty gray. And like really trying to wonder. Um, And I think homosexuality is actually a lot grayer of an issue. I don't think it is quite so black and white. 
Um, and we can go into the specifics of that. Like the word that Paul used was really, he's the only person that really ever used that word. And so we're not actually sure if he was saying homosexual. Like there's a lot of just, right, people arguing back and forth about like, what does that verse actually say? Because nobody uses ancient Greek. Like nobody <laughs> uses ancient Greek anymore. And so we do our best to look back at the original language and try to figure out what it says. But most of the words that Paul uses, we only know what they mean because other people in the same time use those same words. And we can kind of piece together, scholars can piece together and say, okay, well, this word means that, you know? And so when Paul uses the word homosexuality, he's the only, like, there's no other evidence of ancient Greek literature of that word being used. And so, and like nowhere else do we base entire decisions about what we believe on a few verses. Nowhere else in our doctrine, our doctrine about the Trinity, our doctrine about what Jesus, like how Jesus died for our cross, like and paid for our sins, like all of the things that we, that we really hold as tenets of the gospel and our other things that we truly believe about what scripture says, none of those are only based on a couple of verses. So that's why I think that even that, that question is a lot more gray than we think it is. And again, I think as Americans, we have this history of taking scripture and saying, well, what do I think this verse means for me? And there is absolutely a place for that. There is a place to sit and study scripture and say, what do I think it says? The four quads, unless we quadrilateral, are reason. What does my God-given brain tell me, right? What is my common sense? I use my actual brain that the Lord has given me. Scripture. Scripture's in there. What does scripture actually say? Tradition. What is the church historically said about this? And experience. What does my experience tell me? And so I love that because that has helped me and actually so many other people understand women in leadership in the church, right? And sometimes it is okay to say, actually, what does tradition say? And some of it we can book, right? And we can take a critical view of that. Is tradition helping us here or is tradition hurting us here? And sometimes tradition actually helps us. I mean, if we look at um, the first century church women were huge in leadership there. We look at the 1800s. There are actually a lot of dom- denominations that had women in leadership and they flourished. And that is just like one example of one way you can use this quadrilateral. But that is probably when we're sitting with scripture and we're saying, crap, like, well, what is like, what is the Bible really saying here? Like, what does it say about this issue? That's one of my favorite tools to use to try to come to a decision that doesn't feel so rash that doesn't feel so, this is exactly what this verse says and there's no other option, right? Because that is a very, like, honestly, it's a very American-centric view. If we look at our, the Catholic Church, mo- most of the Catholic Church relies a lot more on tradition for good and bad. If we look at, right, the, even the issue of slavery, not at all saying that slavery and homosexuality are at all the same issue. Of course, they are wildly different. Uh, but the Pope actually denounced slavery, like, way before the states did. In many countries that where the Pope where the Pope said ruled for good or bad, in this case it was really helpful that most people are like, okay, cool, that's what the Pope says. Great, we're done. So, and it was just our tight holding to this is what I think that scripture says that really has not made us better as a country. And so I just wonder if we can take our tight fists about this is exactly what scripture says, there's no other option but mine and how I see it, and like just loosen our grip a little bit. And say, you know what, actually, there might be lots of different interpretations. And you know what, we're probably not going to know who's right until we're on the other side of heaven. <laughs> we'd be like, all right, Lord, <laughs> tell us really who was right. Like, we're, we're just not going to know for most of it. So, yeah, I think that there are, there are so many tensions within scripture. And some people might argue that they are contradictions. 
I don't think so. I think we can have a more beautiful view of it than that. And I think also too, just because of the age of enlightenment, like there's so many things that are so helpful because of it, right? All human beings have rights. Like all human beings are of value. We can use our brain and actually trust science and not distrust it. There's so many beautiful things came out of the enlightenment. And I think we spend so much time, especially America, we were the first experiment really of the age of enlightenment. And we're, and it was a pretty successful experiment, but we forget even like that tradition piece, we forget about how people viewed scripture for thousands of years before we decided to take that specific view and stance, right? About it has to be, it has to be proved. This is my proof, right? They're not proof texts that it loses some of the mystery and some of the, like the actual beauty that is in that tension. And if we look at how, except in the Old Testament, most Jewish scholars Back then and now, they don't have an issue with, they're actually, like, they don't have any issue with some things that we get really riled up about the contradictions here. They don't have any issue with it at all because there is enough room for the mystery and the tension to exist. Yeah, I mean, I think what I hear in all of that is, like, on one hand, you know, you talked about, like, capital T truth, and there's this, like, at the end of the day... Like something's got to be true, but then it, in the, at the same time, there's an openness, or if we're in a better space, the church could be more open or willing to say, hey, we may be wrong. And it's, I think, personally, what may be hard for the church is that when we maybe have new revelations or discover, quote unquote, new things, like we're really just honing in closer to what truth is. And it, but sometimes it can feel like truth is so subjective. There's no capital T truth. Personally, I feel the arc of scripture is towards justice. And I also feel like, you know, the Bible was God speaking through people in certain historical con- and cultural contexts that are very important and obviously have gotten us where we are today. But it's not that God quit working or speaking then, you know? So I think the fear is that if we change our mind on theology or whatever it is, we feel like truth is subjective or like we're losing something when really we're coming more into the truth and hopefully becoming more just and equitable and seeing more and more of the kingdom of God in the work that Jesus propagated come to fruition more and more. So with slavery, the Bible was once used to justify that. And then we have gotten past that in ways, thank God. And that fits with what Jesus was all about. And what you see in scripture where, you know, the movement of God starts small with the Israelites, and then Jesus comes and it expands to Gentiles. And it kind of, and then Paul, you know, there's moments throughout the New Testament where women are prominent figures in in ministry, and you see this expansion and inclusion happening. And so I I hear in there not being afraid of admitting when we're wrong, leaning into the gray, and even if we land on what we think is right, holding that kind of loosely, and knowing that you and I at the end of the day could still be wrong. Everything we've talked about on this podcast could all be wrong. And that's okay. Okay. We're trying our best and we're figuring it out. And I think that's what matters. Yeah, I think I think a, a lot of things, <laughs> obviously. There's a quote by 
Rachel Held Evans, who's an author that passed away about a year ago. And I really, really love this quote because uh, what she says is that, like in talking about Christianity and being a Christian, it is the one thing I'm still willing to bet that I'm wrong about. And I'm going to butcher that quote. Oh my gosh. She probably said it so much better than that. But for me, even saying I'm a Christian, right? There's so much baggage. For a couple of years, I like didn't love to use, I like wanted to be like, I love G. I'm like a, I'm, a, I'm just a follower of Jesus. Like I love Jesus. But I also know that that is me not wanting to admit all the awful things that Christians have done. So instead, I'm choosing to say, yeah, I am a, I am a Christian. I follow Jesus. And also, yep, Christians have effed up, man. They have done like horrible things. And I can't sit here and say, oh, well, that wasn't me. That is so harmful. Instead, I can say, yeah, like that is part of the faith tradition I come from. And I am so sorry. And like, that is absolutely awful. And we are called to better things than that. Rather than just saying, no, 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 well, that wasn't me. That doesn't really count. I don't want to reflect badly on me, right? So for me, that is still the one thing. Jesus is still the one thing I am willing to bet being wrong about. And if I get to the end, you know what? And we get, let me die. And there's like no heaven. There's no Jesus. There's no God. You know what? Cool. I have lived my life fully and passionately about something that I think that I really think is the saving grace of everything. And even talking about capital T truth, one of the things I think about a lot is like God's will. <gasps> what is God's will? Like really, talking about like tension in scripture. The only thing that really scripture says about God's will is that it is God's desire to reconcile all of creation back to God. And I think that is one of those T capital T truths. One of the most interesting things I think I've learned in my life is that really truly the best definition of evil is anything that separates someone from God. And so choosing to be a pastor, I actually know that I have so much responsibility in what I say. My personal belief is that spiritual abuse is the most harmful kind of abuse. I think all abuse, it just wrecks us so much. But I really think that spiritual abuse because of that definition of evil, anything that separates people from God is about the worst abuse someone can perpetrate. And so I freaking need to watch my words then because I need to be careful that what I'm saying does not push people away from God and separate others from God. Because I believe that is the big T, capital T truth, that God's desire is to reconcile all of creation back to God. Because in that, we have reconciled relationships with each other with the planet, right? With creation itself. And so, right, it, it can get really hard when we hear our culture saying, truth is subjective. Everyone has their own truth. There is no capital T truth. And then on the other side of that, people argue, well, if there's no capital T truth, then everything is true. And then they use, you know, straw man arguments like, well, then if it's true for you that murder is okay, then we go down some slippery slopes that are like, no one's actually trying to argue that. But it is a little dangerous if nothing is capital T true. And so again, like that tension of wanting to say, actually, there are things that are true about my experience that might not be true for you. There are things about being a woman in ministry and like the challenges that that faces and like the obstacles I already come up against and probably will be coming up against absolutely the rest of my career. There are things I know that I haven't faced yet, but there are some things that like we have to hold on to to ground us. And so there are just like, I think it's a short list of the capital T true things. I just think it could be both and. Like, I don't think it needs to be either or. I think a lot, most of the stickiness we get into is when it when we just say it is either or. But I just wonder if it could be both and. We have some capital T truths and we have some lowercase t 
truths of things that are true about our experience. That's so, so well said. So beautiful. Uh, and I think the last thing I'm going to say about God's will, this is probably one of the things I get, I get real passionate about. Because I think often for those of us who do believe in God and who have faith, um, especially faith in Christ, we wonder, what's God's will for my life? We sit and we like agonize. Often it happens when we have two good decisions in front of us. Maybe it's what college do I choose? What grad school do I choose? What job do I choose? Maybe do I choose this relationship or not? Fill in the blanks. But often when we have good choices in front of us, and there are sometimes we know, we're like, okay, this is not a good choice. Do I text my ex when I'm drunk or do I not? Right? There's some clear boundaries here. Don't text your ex, people. Right? That is a good choice. But if we have those things in front of us, two good choices, and we think, oh, man. If I pick the wrong one, I'm going to mess up God's will for my life. I'm going to mess up everything. I just think that God's a lot bigger than that. If he's reconciling us all the time and fixing us all the time, he can for sure fix if we make the wrong, quote, wrong choice. Instead, when we look at scripture, we go back to scripture to be like, okay, God, how the heck do I know? Instead, we see Jesus asking people over and over again, what do you want? There's numerous examples of him healing someone. And right before he heals them, he asks them, what do you want? Right? I'm thinking about the hemorrhaging woman who touched the bottom of Jesus' cloth and he looked at her and he said, woman, what do you want? And so over and over, that is our example. Jesus asking us, what do you want? So my personal belief is that, especially when we have two good choices, it's a lot more like a choose your own adventure book. Did you ever have those as a kid, right? Where it's like, if Nancy Drew, you want Nancy Drew to go into the house, turn to page 58. If you want her to check the cellar, turn to page 74, right? And either way, you're going you're gonna to do a different ending. And I'm aware of this in like what grad school I could have chosen, right? Because I had a lot of thought, oh, do I do the same place I did my undergrad degree at? It was not going to look bad on my resume or people are not going to respect it as much as, you know, X, Y, or Z school. And I think actually if I'd chosen a different school, I probably would have had a great experience and made different friends and had a different trajectory for maybe what I want to do. But I know I'm so grateful that I chose the school I did because I am in a job that I absolutely adore. And I just know that instead of viewing things as I'm going to make the wrong choice and I'm going to mess up God's plan for me, that instead we ask that question, these are your two choices. Is this choice going to help in reconciling all of creation back to God in some part? Like, it's a good choice that you're in God's will. You're good. Like, we don't have to worry that we're outside of God's will. Because this is the truth. We know. If we are people who believe, who have the Holy Spirit, we have that that actual true conviction. We know when we're outside. We know we're doing something we're not supposed to do. Right? We're very clear of that. So instead, it is more of the question, right? Cultivating our ability to know when it's real, real true conviction, right? Of like, oh, it's probably not a great choice. And then if we're free of that, we're just agonizing over which, which one is the better choice, which one's the best choice. I don't, I do that literally all the time. Having enough trust in ourselves and having us trust enough trust in God that if I mess it up, it's actually still going to be fine. And I'm still going to be okay. And I'm still going to make it through on the other side and I won't have ruined god's plan for me thank you for sharing that man i think i just have a lot i work with gen zers a lot and i have so much faith in the future of the planet because of it like i actually just think they're awesome i mean excluding the idiots that were spring breaking in florida 
But for the most part, I work with some great students and I just who have so much heart and care about the world and care about other people and care about loving people well. Anyway, I think we're going to be okay. I think we'll survive. I mean, if we can make it through, if we can make it through coronavirus, <laughs> I think we'll be okay. Fingers crossed on that one. <laughs> We're getting close to to time. So with these last few questions, we're going to kind of rapid fire them. I hope you're ready. When it comes to resilience in your life, what are the top three things that have helped or do help you? Okay, I'm going to try to rapid fire answer. (laughs) But that's such a great question. I think first is a balance of optimism touched gently by realism. I am always an optimist, but I know that my heart gets broken way more often when I only see what could be good, right? If I only believe, nope, we're going to be done with coronavirus. We're going to be out of quarantine in three, like in a month, we're going to be fine. Everything's going to be back to normal, right? Then in a month, man, I'm going to be brokenhearted. So learning to temper my actual optimism, which is good and really helpful like I said, tempering with realism, with knowing, you know what, actually we might not be out of this in a month. And if not, I'm going to be okay. It might take a little bit longer than that, but I really hope that we're going to be out of here soon. And I know that it is going to be okay. So that's the first one. I think really, truly prayer, which is just like such an easy answer. But for me, undistracted prayer, and I'm not great at this, but it looks better when I take a walk or just take a drive. Or I'm not good at quiet time, like sitting with my Bible, with my journal, like in the corner in the morning. I'm not. Like, that's not something I'm good at. I'm not a quiet person. So it doesn't really work for me. But finding moments where I turn my phone on Do Not Disturb and I actually decide no one's going to bother me right now and I'm just going to sit and I'm going to pray. I'm just going to talk to God about all the things I'm mad at God about and all the things I am really grateful for and all the things that I really need help with and all the other people who really, really need some help. Um, I think that's probably my last point for resilience is as much as I think about myself and how I'm going to do it, like how I'm going to get through this and what I think or what I feel remembering. um, I think about the days that I am upset and I call a friend and they tell me about their day and I actually become more concerned about how they're doing. I end that phone call feeling so much better. So yeah, I love what Glennon Doyle says. We all belong to each other. Mm. That's a good word. All right, next question. If you could tell the world one thing, what would it be? Oh, man. (laughs) You're getting so many heavy hitters today. (laughs) I know, Kali. Just give me an easy, what's it? What's the word? The low ball? I don't, man, sports are not my thing. Theology is my thing. (laughs) Wrong crowd here for sports, so. yeah. an easy ball um okay sports ball what i know sports ball (laughs) um truly i think if i could tell the world one thing i'm gonna give you a really broad answer go for it kindness matters kindness matters much more than we think it does and not just being nice i think there's a big difference between being nice and being kind i think sometimes being nice is just kind of that outward act without caring i think kindness requires our heart and requires us to care. And I need to remind myself of it too. I was at the post office, like right in the first couple weeks of Corona. And I literally had to tell myself, Juliana, do not like everyone was being so awful at the post office. Like people were cutting lines and everyone was angry and everyone was like, right. And I literally tell myself, Juliana, be nice. Do not be mean. 
do not be mean because you are studying to be a pastor. And like, also you're not a mean person. So don't be mean. And so, and I just, there are so many moments right now where our kindness is tested and we are so over and over again, tempted to only look out for ourselves and only do what is best for us personally, selfishly to survive. And it is very tempting to only think about ourselves right now. I think kindness matters a lot more than we think it does. And like in this, on the other vein, kindness to ourselves, you know, challenging. Yes. I think sometimes we can be our own worst critic. Most of the time, most of us can be our own worst critic. So in that, in that learning to balance, right. It's like a tension of being like, how do I be selfless? How do I be kind to other? How do I be kind to others of also learning to be being kind to ourselves? Like those of us who err on the side of normally pretty kind to other people, normally caring about others. We also have to learn if you did something wrong, if you made a mistake, what would you say to your best friend if they did that? Like, what are the words you would use with your best friend? Because would you tell them the exact same thing you're telling yourself right now? I bet you $10 you would not, you know? Yeah. And so if we are use as much care with our words for the people that we love, trying to show a little bit of that kindness and care towards ourselves. Ian Morgan Cron calls it self-compassion yes. and self-friendship. I love the phrase of self-friendship. How do I learn how to be a good friend to myself? Mm. Preach, Pastor. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was so good. There are so many gems in this, and this gave me life, and I know that it'll give other people life too. So thank you, you, Jules, for being here, for sharing your story. I am so excited for you and what's ahead. Congrats on that MDiv. If any of you listening know Juliana, (laughs) tell her congrats, message her, or her info will be in the show notes. Send her congrats even if you don't know her because she has worked her ass off and she deserves to feel loved and celebrated. So, Thank you, my friend. Thank you for having me on. Gosh, I really appreciate it. So before we go, where can people find you if they want to follow you and your journey? Well, I am on Instagram. I mean, unfortunately, there's a million other Juliana Fords on the planet. So look for the one with the red hair. Uh, the white girl with red hair is me. On Instagram, I am juliana.ford.27, but I'm sure Gary can put my handle there. But if you are in ministry or you know someone that is a clergy member and they could use some extra support in this time, this is a really weird and hard time to be a pastor. Uh, my whole team, the Center for Vocational Ministry, we are doing like living room liturgies. We are sending out, we always, our whole dream is to resource current and future pastors. So I work with the future pastors part of undergraduate students and seminary students, but we also do a lot of work with current pastors and have a ton of resources for learning about grief, learning how to help manage finances right now. Uh, if you're working in a church, is we know it's a really tough time or just emotional resources to learn how to take care of yourself. Being a pastor is one of the careers that gets the fastest burnout of any other career. And there's some scary numbers. About 50% of pastors burn out within the first three years of ministry. So my whole team is really passionate about if you are in ministry or know somebody who's in ministry, that information, like Gary said, I'm sure it will be in the show notes and we would love to resource you and get you tools to just learn how to, any helping career, right? We got to learn how to take care of ourselves. And if you're, if you're not in helping career, learn how to take care of yourself. Yes. That's a good word. And on that note, you're amazing. Thank you for having me on, Gary God. What a great, great time. This has been wonderful. It was so fantastic. Welcome to a segment I like to call the Resilience Room, a place where we share tips and tricks to living a more resilient life. 
During our interview, when I asked Juliana what she'd tell the world, she actually had two things to say, and they were simply too good to leave out. Our special guest is none other than, you guessed it, Juliana herself. She shares about the difference between self-care and self-comfort. Take it away, Juliana. One of the biggest things I want to tell the world right now is I just wonder if we can spend a little bit of time learning to recognize the difference between self-care and self-comfort. We have a lot of talks about self-care, especially during quarantine, how to take care of ourselves well. Some of it is really good, some of it isn't. For me, sitting on the couch and watching three hours of Netflix is not self-care, that is self-comfort. It's actually not nourishing me. Taking a walk, that is self-care. Going to the doctors, taking my vitamins, going to therapy, watching an episode of a favorite TV show is absolutely self-care. And so I just wonder if we can spend some time like in our own lives and pull apart the difference. Like what is actually just self-comfort? It's not bringing me joy, it's not bringing me health, but what are things I actually could be doing to take care of myself? What are things that I need? It might not be self-care to somebody else. And it might be a face mask and a bubble bath for you. That is awesome. But actually saying like, what is self-care for me? What do I do to feel taken care of, to feel nourished and to feel like restored? Is there something that helps you be resilient? Let me know. You can message me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Gary Conahan. You can also reach me on the podcast new Instagram account. That's Beautiful Tension Pod, P-O-D at the end, as in podcast. I know there's so much wisdom out there, and I'd love to feature you. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Man, what an episode. Juliana and I have been friends for years now, and it's been fun to watch her calling take shape and evolve. She's been such a great ally to me, and I love everything she had to say about the Bible, thoughtful interpretation, the church, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed listening to her as much as I did. To all my listeners, whether you're of a faith or not, thanks for listening to today's episode. Seriously, you, the listener, make this show possible. Speaking of which, if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider making a small donation to help support the podcast. You can do so at anchor.fm forward slash beautiful tension, which is also listed in the show notes. You can also rate and review the podcast, which seriously helps a lot, and share beautiful tension with your friends, all of which help too. I appreciate your support. Well, that's all I've got for today. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on Beautiful Tension. Beautiful Tension.